This first session is going to be about Alcock and Brown's flight in heavier-than-air aircraft, and then the second session of this afternoon is going to be the double-crossing of the Atlantic in the lighter-than-air R-34. And this first session is we're going to have two speakers who I think are going to more or less flow into each other, so I'll introduce both of them now. Um, the first speaker is Peter Elliott, who is senior keeper at the RAF Museum in charge of the Research and Information Services Department with responsibility for archive and library collections. He trains as a le technical librarian, worked with the MOD and at Farnborough, uh, and then joined the RAF Museum in 1984. Um, he is my Deputy Chairman of the Historical Group of the Royal Aeronautical Society and has been a member of the Historical Group Committee since 1998. The other speaker of this um, first part of this afternoon's proceedings is David Broughton, who is Director of the Royal Institute of Navigation. David was an RAF navigator on transport aircraft and then as an aerosystems graduate trials officer and instructor at Boscombe Down, at RAE Bedford, and at the Air Warfare Centre. His last flying tour was as commander of the Nimrod um, AEW Joint Trials Unit, and he was very sad to have to reject the aircraft in favour of the E-3D. He has... Um, made 25 Aries flights to the North Pole, which um, is a record. Um, he's been director of the Institute of Navigation since 1992 and is an active private pilot. Um, could I ask um, Peter to uh, start his presentation? Thank you, Kit, and good afternoon, everyone. My aim this afternoon is to describe first the background to the Alcock and Brown flight, something about the two men's own background in aviation, the preparations for the flight, and then I'll hand over to David Broughton to talk about the navigational aspects and, and the flight itself. I'll then, um, if you like, finish the sandwich by talking about the subsequent events, the immediate public reaction to the flight, the two men's later lives, and the actual reminders that we have left of their achievement. And I'll aim to illustrate my talk with some of the material held by the Royal Air Force Museum. We're very fortunate to have a, a wide, wide-ranging collection of documents and artifacts relating to the two men. Uh, particularly Brown's own personal papers. Um, we have a, the, the chart that they used on the flight, his navigation log, and the notebook which they, he used to pass messages to Olcott during the flight. And in addition, there are uh, accounts that were published by both men, and I've also drawn on some material that's available in other repositories. The background then, well, I suppose it was only a matter of time 
before somebody would try to fly the Atlantic, because it's there. But a major incentive came from Lord Northcliffe, who was the owner of the Daily Mail. He'd been a major sponsor of aviation in the UK in the period before the First World War, and offered substantial prizes. In 1906, for example, two years before the first recognised powered flight in the UK, he'd offered a prize for a flight from London to Manchester, which was eventually won by Louis Pala in 1910. We are about to celebrate this month the centenary of Blériot's uh, Channel Crossing, which was another of Northcliffe's um, competitions. Uh, JTC Moore Brabazon, who was uh, later to become Lord Brabazon of Tara, was the winner of the prize for the first circular flight of a mile or more by a British pilot in a British-built machine. Uh, another Frenchman, Jean Conneau, won a prize in 1911 for a 1,000-mile circuit of Britain. Uh, but the following year, 1912, Lord Northcliffe offered a prize for a 1,000-mile seaplane circuit of Britain, but that was not won. In 1913, then, the Daily Mail announced a prize of £10,000 for the first transatlantic flight with the following conditions. The flight had to be made in an aeroplane rather than an airship, could be made from any point in Great Britain or Ireland to any point in Newfoundland, Canada or the USA, or vice versa. And you may know that uh, Newfoundland wasn't actually part of Canada at that stage, it was a separate dominion until 1949. The flight had to be made in 72 continuous hours. You were only allowed one aircraft per attempt. But you could make an intermediate stop or stops on water, not, it would appear, on land, um, without incurring any penalty. And in 1913, several people were reported to be making preparations for such a flight. There were two firm entries, Gustav Hamel, with a Martinside monoplane, and Lieutenant uh, J.C. Port in the Curtis flying boat. Hamel, unfortunately, was lost in the Channel in May 1914. The Great War put uh, an end to any thought of transatlantic flying, but between April and June 1919, there were no less than seven attempts made on the, the flight. And these included Major Wood and Captain Wiley in a short shirl. Theirs was the only east-west attempt, but they ditched on their way to Ireland from Hollyhead. Um, they were intending to leave from Ireland, but unfortunately they had an engine failure over the Irish Sea. Three US Navy flying boats uh, made the journey, at least one of them completed the journey, and arrived in Lisbon, having taken 11 days altogether. And Harry Hawker and Lieutenant Commander Kenneth Mackenzie Grieve uh, took off from Newfoundland in a single-engine Sopwith aircraft. They also encountered engine problems and had to ditch in the Atlantic. Fortunately, both they and their aeroplane were rescued, 
and in fact the aircraft was later displayed at Selfridges on Oxford Street, as indeed had Louis Blériot's cross-channel machine. The London Aerodrome at Hendon dedicated one of its, I think, almost weekly meetings to the two men, and we have the uh, printed souvenir that the aerodrome issued. You can see there the two men and obviously their, uh, their aircraft. And towards the back of the uh, publication, there is a list, effectively, of the remaining contestants. And the first three of those are what we would perhaps regard as the serious contenders. Martin Side entered an aeroplane piloted by Raynham. His, unfortunately, had been damaged quite seriously on takeoff, so he was effectively out of the race. Handley Page had a V-1500 four-engine bomber uh, being prepared in Newfoundland. And of course, the third one there is the Vickers entry. Um, only Alcock as the pilot seems to get a mention there. So the stage was set, and let's start with a look at the two men. John Alcock, uh, usually known as Jack, was born in Manchester in 1891. In 1910, he went to Brooklands to work as a mechanic, and two years later, he gained his Royal Aero Club Aviator Certificate. That's the club's record card for him, and the photograph he submitted to go with his certificate. He later flew in the 1914 London to Manchester air race, and he also taught people to fly. When Brooklands was taken over by the Royal Flying Corps in August 1914, Alcock joined the Royal Naval Air Service, initially as a warrant officer, but then was commissioned in December 1915. He served mostly as an instructor at East Church, and in his annual uh, report, his commanding officer described him as one of the steadiest pilots in the country and commented that Alcock had turned down an offer to be a test pilot at a salary of £800 per annum, which is about 57000 in today's money, plus £5 per machine tested. In 1917, Alcock was posted to Mudros, flying Handley Page 0100s on bombing raids against the Turks. During that time, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, but in October of 1917, he was on a mission to Bodden, uh, Constantinople, when the reduction gear sheared off one of his engines. He tried to keep the aircraft in the air, but kept losing height, and eventually they were forced to ditch in the Gulf of Zeros, which is off Suvla Bay. He and the two crew were then fired on by the Turks from the shore, and they had to swim apparently for an hour to get ashore and to safety but of course were taken prisoner, and so Orcock spent the rest of the war as a POW. In March 1919, he was transferred to the, the unemployed list, and wrote later, at last I was free to attack the big problem of crossing the Atlantic. I approached Messrs Vickers, and the sporting enterprise appealed to them. Arthur Whitton Brown, was born in Glasgow of American parents. Um, his father was an engineer, an engineer who mostly worked in Manchester. 
and Arthur himself became an engineering apprentice with Westinghouse. Although he had US citizenship, he seems to have given this up to join the army in September of 1914, and in 1915 was commissioned in the Manchester Regiment. Later that year, he transferred to the Royal Flying Corps and flew as an observer with Number 2 Squadron in uh, BE-2s. In November of 1915, he and his pilot were on a reconnaissance over Valenciennes. And the engine failed, possibly through snow blocking the carburettor, but also apparently there is a theory that the uh, petrol tank had been holed by ground fire. In the forced landing, the aircraft crashed and Brown broke his fibula, that's a, leg at the, a bone at the back of the leg, and dislocated his knee and thigh. This wasn't bad enough. He and his pilot were then fired on by German troops and he was hit in the foot. They both, again, were taken prisoner. Whilst he was a prisoner of war, Brown spent a lot of his time studying navigation. Uh, that wasn't really part of the observer syllabus at that stage, so most of his navigation seems to have been self-taught. Probably because of his injuries, Brown was part of an exchange of prisoners in 1917. He was interned for nine months in Switzerland, and then repatriated and did non-combatant work on aero engine construction. In his file in the National Archives, there's a letter he wrote to the War Office um, in which he said he was hoping to become either an instructor or a test pilot. But that um, never came to pass, unfortunately. After the armistice, he went before an Air Force medical board, which decided that he was permanently unfit for general service, service overseas. Obviously, the result of his wounds that had left him with a permanent limp. He was demobilized and out of work, like thousands of other ex-servicemen, although he wasn't formally released from the Royal Air Force until August of 1919. He tried to offer his navigation skills to some of the firms entering for the Daily Mail Prize, but without success. After applying to Vickers for an engineering job, he met Olcock at Brooklands. The pair of them seemed to get on very well, and he was taken on for Vickers' transatlantic attempt. So those are the aircrew. Now the uh, aircraft itself. The Vimy was designed as a twin-engine bomber and first flew in November 1917, but it entered service too late for the Great War. Uh, nevertheless, it remained in service until 1929. Powered by two Rolls-Royce Eagle engines, each developing 360 horsepower. And for the transatlantic flight, a number of modifications were made. Um, firstly, the bomb racks, which you can just see above the wheels under the uh, centre of the fuselage there, were removed. Obviously, there was no need for them. The skid at the front was also removed. Uh, initially, they tried fitting a wheel in its place, but that was uh, not continued with and was not on the aircraft when it uh, flew the Atlantic. Extra fuel tanks were fitted in this gunner's cockpit behind the wing there. The front cockpit would be um, 
unoccupied and so it was fared over to reduce drag and so on. I've not been able to um, confirm whether or not there was another fuel tank in the front cockpit. And the rear cockpit was fared over um, with what's described as a boat-shaped fairing, partly for aerodynamic reasons, but I think mostly for use as a lifeboat should they unfortunately have to come down in the, in the sea. The company's advance party, which included Holcock and Brown, sailed from Liverpool on the Mauritania on the 4th of May and arrived at St John's on the 13th. And we have a letter from Brown to his fiancée, Margaret Kennedy, sorry, Marguerite Kennedy, in which he says, We made no friends except among the ship's officers, as I spent most of my time on the bridge learning to navigate properly. It's not clear how much practice Brown had actually been able to get, especially in the use of sextants. Meanwhile, the Vimy had been dismantled and cratered, and left on the 13th of May, arriving on the 26th. Now, May was a busy time in Newfoundland. On the 15th, the US Navy airship C-5, which was aiming to make its own crossing, was blown from its moorings and lost. On the 16th, the three American flying boats we heard about earlier set off. On the 18th, Hawker and Mackenzie Grieve took off, and also Raynham crashed his Martin side on takeoff. So when the Vickers team arrived in Newfoundland, they found that all the best sites had been taken. Raynham's aircraft was taken into St. John's for repair, and he kindly gave his field at Kiddy Viddy to Vickers. Alcock describes it as a cricket field, and I hadn't realised that cricket was played in that part of the world. The Vimy, which was in crates, was delivered on horse-drawn wagons and had to be erected in the open, as Raynham's canvas hangar was not big enough. At least the Vickers team were then able to use the crates for sleeping and dining in, and Alcock apparently had gained quite a reputation as a cook and provided breakfast every morning for the workers. It was only bacon and egg and toast, but it was still breakfast. By the 9th of June, the aircraft had been fully assembled. It would need a takeoff run of 500 yards when fully laden, so Alcock flew it to another field, known as Mundy's Pool, or occasionally Leicester's Field, which is about three miles away where a gang was clearing the larger rocks to give a longer run. The aircraft nearly came to grief on landing. They were heading for the fence at the end of the field when Alcock opened up the starboard engine to swing the aircraft round and bring it to a halt. A second test flight was made on the 12th of June and Alcock was quite keen to leave on the 13th despite the fact that it was a Friday. He said that the Vimy was the 13th built at Weybridge. There were 13 in the party. They'd arrived on the 13th of May. And in any case, Friday was his lucky day. Sadly, this was not to be, because when the machine was fully loaded with some 870 gallons of petrol and 40 of oil, part of the undercarriage gave way and had to be repaired. So on the 14th, Alcock and Brown at the airfield early, somewhere in the region of four o'clock in the morning, 
preparing to take off. He seems quite keen, um, John Alcock, in his account, to mention the equipment suppliers. Uh, perhaps they were sponsors. Uh, so we know that the electrically heated clothing, which is um, gacket and the insole there at the top, um, they came from Burberry's. The life jacket on the top right there came from Geeves. As David Rowland already mentioned, they had sandwiches, plenty of fries, chocolate, Horlicks malted milk and hot oxo in a ferrostat vacuum flask, a wonderful contrivance out of which we had hot drinks long after our arrival in Ireland. The aircraft was also fitted with wireless and carried um, a number of mascots. Two of them were cats. The one on the right there is Twinkle Toes and flew in, um, in Brown's jacket, whereas Olcock's cat, Lucky Jim, spent the flight tied to a strut. Uh, interesting use of the word lucky. And the horseshoe there was apparently screwed to the bottom of the seat in the cockpit. They spent quite a while waiting for a gusty crosswind to calm down so they could take off. Eventually they started engines and the Vimy set off on its takeoff run. And with a hundred yards left before the stone wall of the field, the aircraft rose, dropped again, and cleared the wall by a couple of feet. There was a valley just on the other side of the fence and the aircraft was able to pick up a bit of speed and then turned and came back over the field with a strong tailwind and climbed away. They had a final position fix over Cabot Hill and set a course of 124 degrees magnetic. And at this point I'd like to hand over to David Broughton to cover the um, flight and the navigation aspects. Well, navigation was uh, to be a, a major challenge as much as all of the uh, engineering and, and the administration that had uh, preceded it. Um, <clears throat> As has already been explained, the, the traditional Vimy had three cockpits on it, um, and uh, this particular one didn't. It had only, only the one, and uh, this was hidden just by along, alongside the, the props, in fact, incredibly close to the props. And that um, gave them a, a fair bit of problem, and uh, the techniques to be used um, had to adapt themselves to what was in fact an extremely crushed cockpit. Um, <clears throat> although the aircraft carried radio, it had both a transmitter and a receiver, uh, Brown considered that, that DF uh, was too unreliable um, still in those days, and so he decided to abandon it. He, he didn't wish to, to rely on it at all. Um, so basically, he had very little choice. He um, could use dead reckoning, deduced reckoning, if one does it in full. Um, so he was going to do a, a track plot, basically, of dead reckoning, supplemented by being able to record drift and ground speed through a, um, a drift meter, uh, and also using um, Astro. And incidentally, all of those techniques, the, the, the whole plethora of techniques, were exactly as, as a navigator 
40 or 50 years later, uh, I was taught at nav school. We had a drift, drift site, we did track plots and everything else. Things changed very, very little. So, <clears throat> basically the two, um, the two shared the cockpit with Alcock on the, the right hand side there, um, piloting, and um, Brown himself on the, the left hand side. The kit that he had with him um, comprised a roller map. Uh, this is called a, a Baker navigation machine. Uh, the roller map, if you uh, were ever, as I know some of you are, were familiar with, uh, with Decker or Omnitrack, etc., was just a, a precursor of that sort of thing, and uh, literally was a, a manually rolled map with pre-prepared maps uh, all rolled up there. Um, you can't see this very well, but basically this was the, the track that they were going to go on, and this was fundamentally his, his map. Um, it's, as we've heard, of course, is from Newfoundland there. And they were aiming for the middle of Ireland, which gave them a fair bit of leeway either side of track uh, for when they got there, uh, which was extremely sensible. Um, <clears throat> you'll see that this is a Mercator chart, so that um, all of the, uh, basically everything is squared up. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the track that's drawn on there, the straight track, is the one that he basically navigated on, uh, is therefore a, a rum line. It's, it's an extremely convenient uh, way of navigating in that, that the, the true bearing of the track, of course, doesn't change at all. But it's, uh, comparatively speaking, especially if you're go going a long way east-west, it is, of course, quite inefficient. And you can see on his map there, going across the top uh, and concave to the, the equator, is actually the Great Circle, which is a, a shorter way between the, the two points. Uh, if you look at it, um, for instance, if you pulled a bit of string tight between the, each end of the, uh, <coughs> of the track there on, on a globe. Um, you'll see he's marked on here also uh, variation, which was quite considerable. We're talking of uh, something like 32 degrees west up there, 30-ish uh, down here. Uh, going both up and then down again as you got back towards Ireland. Uh, he also marks up uh, the variation each time you cross a, um, a line of longitude, uh, a meridian every five degrees or so. Uh, he's also marked, you can't really see them either, but there were three ships that he knew of that were uh, traveling at the time, and he's marked them all up on the chart uh, for two reasons. He might have been able to at least chat to them and also, if uh, they happened to have uh, ditched, it might be nice to know where they, they were. So that was the actual chart that he, he used. Astro was to be the major fixing mode, and uh, in those days, one still had basically a, a marine sextant. Um, <clears throat> Brown had tried to get hold of a... Um, what, what was a brand new technique of having a, a proper bubble sextant. Um, one had been invented by somebody called Bird. Uh, he, he became Admiral Bird. Um, but, uh, and he actually ordered one, but he didn't get it in time. So he was stuck with this marine sextant. But there was something uh, which basically uh, was known as an Albany um, spirit level, which was put on the front of it here. And the the spirit level here could be used, could be clipped into place, 
And if you didn't have a horizon at all, then you could use that in, in its place. Apparently nothing like as easy to use as a bubble sextant, for those of you who have had the pleasure of using one, uh, far more complicated because far more things were all moving at the same time. And uh, to try and get the horizon and the um, body that you're trying to shoot and um, uh, everything else all lined up in one go was apparently quite a challenge, um, probably quite a challenge in a nice smooth transport aircraft. In an open cockpit, quite unbelievable, I would have thought. Um, <clears throat> to actually take the shots, um, for a lot of the time then, uh, Brown actually um, had to kneel on the seat, uh, facing whatever way he had to face. Uh, this, of course, put him uh, up in the, the blast of the air coming round. Apparently, the the cockpit itself was comparatively um, fairly well sheltered and, and comparatively warm, uh, but not so once you got your, your head out of it uh, and you were doing your astro. Um, there was also, and uh, there's lots of myths about this, but um, just while one has that picture there, uh, Brown also uh, had to climb up on this part of the fuselage here, uh, in which case he was there up in the air with his... his backside basically facing into 70 knots or so of extremely cold wind, which um, if you know any, any air crew at all, you know is exactly the reverse of, of what usually happens with air crew, who do tend to, to have a lot of hot air and, and speak from other places. Um, so that's, uh, that's the way they found themselves, and the Astro itself was um, not only going to be very, very hard to, to perform in the air, but also to do the calculation and plotting. And um, he had prepared himself a series of uh, what are called Sumner lines. And the Sumner lines take the basically the sub-point of, of whatever you're going to shoot. It might be the sun, the moon, or, or a star. And it draws... Uh, you, you, the Sumner line is a line of equal altitude, um, in other words, equal distance away from that particular body's sub-point. Um, extremely convenient for doing very quick plotting, and uh, these Sumner lines were drawn on um, transparent maps which overlaid the, uh, the main map here and could be slid along basically um, ev every four minutes or so you would have to slide your sum uh, Sumner line origin along uh, one degree um, to the west. And uh, that's how, in fact, he, he actually got on with the, the plotting. Once again, on uh, transport aircraft in the 60s, I, I still used an occasional Sumner line if you were getting close to where a body was way overhead. So things didn't change uh, massively for a very long time. But those of you who got into Astro uh, around that time know that, in fact, this sort of technique was, was replaced by what was known as the Marks and Hilaire method, which you, you uh, basically had a, an assumed position and you, you plotted it from there. The technique was, was fundamentally the same, it's just that the, the latter version was rather easier to use. There was also what was known as a, a, a drift bearing plate. Um, this was, again, for those who have uh, been involved with things like varsities and valettas back in the days of, of my training again, um, was simply something that uh, you could see the ground beneath you, uh, whether it was uh, the sea or land, 
uh, rotate a graticle until you find you found any part of it was following along that graticle, um, timing its passage uh, from one part to another, and with that you can get both a drift um, and a ground speed. Uh, extremely useful uh, so long as you can see the ground underneath you. There was also what was called a, a um, uh, an apple yard course and uh, distance calculator, very much like the uh, the Dalton uh, that people still use today, uh, just rather more mechanical about it and obviously looking uh, rather older. This was used with uh, what were uh, traverse tables, um, which basically gave you quickly uh, the likes of um, tracks and distances between, uh, between points on a Mercator chart. Uh, that itself quite convenient. I do notice on uh, on his chart that he didn't do as, again, we, we used to do a little later on, uh, and that is mark up lines, for instance, of distance to go along track. Uh, they appear to be missing on his chart, and instead of that he would use these uh, transverse um, calculations using a, a look-up uh, set of books. Airborne compasses back in those days were, again, derived from the, the um, maritime world, and uh, the one that was in use uh, is basically starting to look like the P-series compasses, for those, again, that flew with P-10s and P-12s, etc. Um, it had uh, a light on it uh, for use at night. Uh, no such thing, of course, as, as a directional gyro to uh, mate this up with at all. Um, and I would suggest that it must have meandered from side to side the whole time. Uh, when one was talking of holding a, a particular heading to the odd degree or so, I would have suggested it would be totally and utterly impossible. The, um, the track, as I'd said, has, uh, was there and aiming at the, the middle of Ireland. Um, it also had uh, the uh, Clifton Radio um, masts at the end, which had, hit, had Brown decided to revert to using uh, DF, uh, would be an extremely convenient um, point uh, so far as somewhere to aim for, um, and to give that, that final homing should it be required. Um, initially, both... Uh, pilot and navigator, whilst they were chatting their way through this, uh, used ordinary, uh, in fact, their throat microphones and earphones stuffed underneath their, their helmets. But um, this became very uncomfortable for Alcock, and after a couple of hours, he discarded his headphones, and for the rest of the um, time, uh, they simply conversed with, uh, with notes handed between in fact, I think they were all written, in fact, by um, Brown and handed to Alcock. This uh, obviously wasn't particularly convenient for them, but it's extremely good so far as records are concerned, because, in fact, we, we have got those notes, and it's through those that one is actually able to, um, to get a good idea of how the, how the flight went. Uh, Brown kept a, a log going, but, in fact, um, a far more um, interest, really, to, to people was the, the fact that... Um, he, we did have these scribbled notes, and I'll show you quite a few of those as we go. One thing worth noting is the fact that um, we have here GMT 428, and 
it appears that the, the navigator's time back in those days started at midday. Uh, so in fact, this is, is 4.28 p.m. Uh, so it's actually, in, in, in our time, it's 16, 16.28 GMT or, or Zulu, if one wants to, uh, to use the normal uh, nomenclature for it. This is typical of the sort of notes that we had. And uh, as you hear, the, the aircraft got airborne and it uh, got itself setting heading on uh, basically a heading of, of 124 degrees magnetic uh, straight onto the compass. Um, and uh, off they set and they coasted out at uh, 1628 in GMT. Uh, 4.28 p.m., so far as uh, they were concerned. Um, <clears throat> you heard that the takeoff was fairly dicey. Well, the, the climb away was equally unimpressive in that it took them eight minutes to get to a 1,000 feet, uh, which is not an enthralling rate of climb. Um, the aircraft itself um, would typically climb at about 55 knots. It... Um, had a top speed of around 90 knots um, and with typical cruising power of between 50 and, and 75 percent power uh, it would cruise at around 65 to 70 knots so things didn't happen particularly fast the met forecast for for the uh, entire flight uh, was that there should be a, a strong tailwind for a start uh, but this should disappear after about 100 miles, and the entire flight thereafter should be pretty well clear. So they were hoping that uh, they would be able to see lots of sky, lots of sea beneath them. Things didn't work too well, but we all know what net forecasts are like anyway. So um, off, they, uh, off they trogged, and... Um, they could certainly, for the first hour or so, Brown could see the sun. He actually um, found himself not uh, not using it at that stage of the game. He couldn't actually take a shot on it because the, um, uh, the, the wing was actually in the way. Had it been later in the flight, then he probably would have asked for a change of heading so that he could get a shot on it, but it didn't seem particularly important at that stage. Um, so off they went, and uh, this is the sort of typical speed that they were going, and, and the typical way that the, the um, actual, um, both the, the chart and the log looked. Um, 5.20 or 17.20, 18.20 there. Uh, these little marks there are, are in fact 10-mile uh, ones, and you can see there that we're talking of a, a, a ground speed which looks like around about 120 knots or so. Um, he actually reckoned at first they, were, they had quite a lot more than that. They had about, uh, about 143 knots for, for a start, which seemed quite an impressive ground speed. Um, you can see here, once again, we have uh, the sort of uh, notes being handed around. Um, uh, for a start, talking about accurate uh, flying, he's saying try and keep the, uh, the heading at closer to 120 than 140. Well, that's not exactly uh, flying to the nearest one degree. Um, and he also notes here we, they had a, a, a major problem in that uh, there were two wind-driven generators for, the, um, for use for electricity required in the, in the cockpit itself. 
and uh, the one that actually was connected to the radio transmitter, uh, the little propeller flew off it. So they finished up without, uh, without a generator and effectively without a transmitter. So from there onwards, um, they could not get in touch with anyone. They could still receive messages should anyone wish, wish to talk to them, but not, uh, not transmit. So basically, uh, they got going. They found themselves with fog below and cloud above, and uh, very quickly, they were simply uh, subject to dead reckoning, and that was pretty well all that they could do. Changes of heading uh, as they were doing this um, dead reckoning were largely uh, simply a result of um, the change in variation, which was quite considerable as they went along. Um, and uh, they simply hoped for the best effectively uh, as they went. Coming along now uh, to 1940, uh, 740 in his time, and basically um, Brown had given up really on further fixing at the time, and had simply said, uh, can you keep climbing as best you can? Let's try and get above cloud uh, so that we can uh, at least get some stars tonight and, and get a good fix or two on the way across. Uh, but not if you're going to wear out the engines. It's not as important as that. And we've got another four hours anyway until it's dark. So uh, don't climb too dramatically uh, on, on your engines. You can see here uh, at 2020, uh, uh, incidentally, uh, Brown had got to a, a point of, of an hourly cycle where he would um, attempt to, to get a fix every hour. It may only be a dead reckoning fix or so. And this, this cycle was at 20 past the, the hour. It worked out conveniently for when, once they'd coasted out and everything. So that was the, the sort of um, cycle in which he had got. And these were the sort of calculations that he was doing, uh, basically on the likes of um, doing a uh, transverse calculation to see how far they've got to go, um, uh, etc. And that would be all part and parcel of the cycle. They had um, passed by before this time now, uh, an hour or so before here, which was 2031, um, they'd had a, 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 an additional problem thrown at them in that the starboard engine manifold on, on their side of the engine had decided to, to melt away. So they had uh, added to their other problems of, of not anyway being able to talk to each other because it was so noisy. They suddenly found that they had three cylinders actually um, exhausting directly at them from the engine. It wasn't going into any form of exhaust manifold. Um, that could have been dangerous as it happened. Apparently there were, there were great spits of, of white metal coming out at one stage of the game. Uh, but it, it calmed down and they just got used to an incredibly high noise level uh, which they had to, had to live with. So off they uh, carried on going. Um, they did get uh, at one stage um, another check on their ground speed and uh, once again, uh, 140 knots. Um, going, considering they had a, they, they were still climbing, so their, their airspeed was somewhere between 65 and 70. Uh, then, in fact, they uh, were doing extremely well. And um, Brown kept on indicating to himself and to Alcott that, in fact, they were going very much faster than they, they had planned to. 
uh, and things from that point of uh, view uh, were going quite well. But um, the whole time, Brown was saying to Alcott, please try and keep climbing. I need you to get above cloud because we're, we're starting to be quite a long time before we've got any, any fixes whatsoever. Um, ultimately, um, around about uh, 10 o'clock or so, then uh, it, life became uh, dark for them, and uh, Brown was preparing, hopefully, to be able to see the clouds. Uh, he illuminated the compass so that uh, at least all could, could, could steer by it in the dark. Uh, all of the other instruments were luminous so that there was no other electricity uh, needed. Um, and anything else that was had to be looked at from the cockpit or in the cockpit uh, was looked at by um, uh, with a torch. What had also happened, I think largely because they had lost the alternate, uh, this one of their generators, was that the um, heating that, that Peter had spoken about, the heated um, actual flying suits that they were wearing, gloves, uh, feet and, and body, um, were taking too much power out of the batteries so that they decided uh, at that stage to only use uh, one or two of the possible three um, different forms of heating that they could have had, electrical heating for their flying suits. Having said that, they didn't appear to complain very much about the cold in, in that um, Brown had rec recorded a few times that in fact the, the cockpit was actually not dramatically cold so long as you stayed in it. Not so if you uh, started poking uh, bits of your body outside. Um, and this was his, uh, his note to, to, to that effect. Um, at uh, 22.20 now, they'd been airborne for six hours. Uh, the navigation log noted that there were no observations and the DR was, was apparently a long way out. Uh, and once again, can you please try and get above cloud? Um, by 23.20, so uh, about seven hours after they'd been airborne, uh, they were up at 5,200 feet. Um, they'd lost some fuel, of course, by then. Uh, they were getting lighter and able to climb. Uh, but they still had unbroken cloud both below and above them. So again, it was simply dead, uh, dead reckoning. Uh, at midnight, they climbed out of cloud at about 6,000 feet um, and uh, only to find themselves with yet another layer of cloud above them. But at that stage of the game, there were glimpses through the high-level cloud uh, of um, stars and, um, in fact, at that stage of the game, uh, Brown managed to uh, grab a, um, a fix basically on Vega um, and Polaris. And you can see, once again, these are the sort of scribbled um, calculations he did. Uh, that would have been the height that he had observed on the sextant of Vega. Um, he had um, basically used the cloud layer below him as the horizon at that particular time, so he didn't have to apply great uh, dip angles to it. Uh, it was easier using that than the, the, as it were, the artificial bubble as well. Uh, so that's how he took that. Uh, basically his uh, calculations there, um, and he'd got both the um, Polaris and Vega, which basically crossed each other extremely conveniently, and really was pretty well the only fix that they ever got the whole time. 
had I submitted my login chart looking like this, I most certainly would have failed at navigation school, but there it is. I wasn't in an open cockpit in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, there is his beaker position line up and down there, and Polaris, of course, gives you um, a latitude. So his Polaris shot actually was there, and there he was at um, basically uh, 31 degrees uh, west and just over 50.07 north. Uh, and that, that, to him, was a really good fix. You can, at this stage of the game, just see where he had plotted where these ships were going to be as well, in case they, uh, they lobbed into the sea. Um, here, again, we are on our track here, with uh, variation uh, noted every five degrees or so, as well as the isognals across here. There, again, because you can see this a little more easily now, there is his straightened-up great circle route, and there is the rum line over which he's basically navigating. Um, if he is going to um, come off this track here, it is more efficient if he can wander off it to the left, go up to the north, and, and go down south. He'll be making a, a much longer trip if he starts doing this. Uh, he'll actually shorten it if he goes off track to, to the uh, left there. Um, so, at this stage of the game... Um, Basically, what could he say? He said, right, we are now halfway across. And they had got themselves halfway across at uh, around about uh, 25 past midnight that night. Uh, they'd taken off in the evening, of course, they were, and they were flying right the way through the night. Uh, altered course to, uh, to 110 as a, a new heading. And he reckoned that their average speed now, things obviously had dropped off somewhat, but his average ground speed had been 106 knots, which is pretty good going. He had kept uh, a good tailwind uh, as they were going across. Um, at this stage of the game now, this is getting on for 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, basically, he was saying, uh, look, the sun is going to be coming up shortly. When it does so, point your... Um, nose directly at the sun when you first see it. This, of course, is assuming that you're going to see it at all, uh, and we'll get a, a compass bearing on it. And at this stage of the game, uh, they were still flying there and um, not seeing the sun at all. But um, they flew into some extremely thick cloud at this stage of the game, and um, it, it's worth just noting that, that the um, and I say this as a, an, a, a bum private pilot myself, the, the limited instrument panel that you had in this aircraft for flying uh, in uh, instrument conditions uh, is pretty pathetic if you look at it by today's standards. Um, the, this is a clinometer here behind the wheel which gives you a, an indication of the vertical uh, laterally and uh, above it you can't see it but behind the wheel there is uh, another clinometer of sorts, it's a rather different one, which gives you the nose up or down situation. Uh, that's pretty well all that you had. There's no such thing as a gyro-driven uh, uh, artificial horizon or anything as sophisticated as that. Uh, there's an airspeed indicator there, a compass, um, uh, and an altimeter, but they had no idea what the pressure settings were either, so the altimeter was a, a, a fair approximation. So, uh, Olcock, uh, in this right-hand seat, who also, uh, not only was he flying manually for the whole time, um, but 
They had tried to uh, give him some possibility of, of relief by way of a trimmer. There was no such thing as a trimmer on the aircraft itself to try and relieve the loads. He was actually holding the load the whole time. Um, just before they'd gone, they, they put some sort of bun bungee rubber um, for him to tie around the thing and to change the, the tension on the bungee rubber to actually act as a, a trimmer itself, which is quite a clever idea. Unfortunately, in the rush to get airborne, it was cut off too short, so in fact he never managed to use it. So uh, poor old Olcott was, was taking all of the loads the whole time for all, all 16 hours or so uh, and had this incredibly limited panel. Um, what happened then was that they got into a, um, a situation where uh, Alcock fundamentally lost it for a short time. Um, the, uh, the aircraft um, obviously had gone into a dive of some sort. Um, it, uh, it was started off at 3,500 feet. It, it was cold. Uh, he discovered, he, he realized that that was the case. The speed apparently had gone up to 90 knots. Uh, he managed to lift, lift the nose, but that made no difference whatsoever to the, um, to the airspeed indicator. So he still got 90 knots with the, the nose pointing right up in the air. A fair indication uh, that he probably had the pitot tube frozen up. Uh, having done that, then the aircraft stalled and entered a spin. So they were in cloud, three and a half thousand feet, spinning. Um, and I, I suppose it, it, it's quite possible that the um, story might improve a little bit with the telling, but uh, Brown, in his uh, account of the, uh, of the whole event, says the aircraft came out of the spin under cloud at a hundred feet. Uh, in fact, it didn't come out of the spin. It was still, uh, apparently, the sea appeared vertically to them uh, as opposed to horizontally. Uh, but in that last hundred feet, it would appear that they recovered from uh, this spinning uh, situation that they were in. Uh, Alcock, who had, had powered down the engines, uh, then powered them up again and uh, regained um, level flight. Again, they claim at about 50 feet. Um, now, if that had happened to me, it would have been a very messy cockpit, I can assure you. It would... Uh, it must be the most frightening thing you could ever have thought happening. Um, they also finished up facing America, and they were flying off to the west at that stage again, which was not particularly convenient. Um, so uh, all that was recorded, as so far as um, Brown was concerned, is uh, got into a spiral down to 100 feet, um, and uh, he then says to, uh, to Alcock, he says, hold it steady now, we can see the sea, uh, and I'll try and go to uh, a drift off off the sea, drift and ground speed. Uh, which seems, uh, having just been through that particular experience, seems unbelievably calm to me. I suppose one could only compare that with, uh, in modern day parlance, as to a sort of situation that possibly uh, uh, an Airbus 330 got itself into, perhaps only uh, five weeks or so ago. So here they are now. Um, Life is getting uh, later on now. We're, we're now talking of uh, sort of 3.30 in the morning. Um, wonderful observation. This is a great trip. No ships, no stars or anything. Uh, have a Sarnie. And uh, at that stage of the game, they uh, once again, Brown was, was also chief stewardess, sorry, steward, on the, uh, on the flight. And he had a little box behind him in which they had 
as Peter has already explained, the, the Sarnies, coffee, etc. Um, uh, he notes that the sun is coming up then. Uh, have a good look for it. So, um, they continue on. Um, they found themselves in yet more cloud again, uh, unable to get uh, any more fixes for a time. Um, but the cloud that they were now flying into was, was more of a cumulus cloud, and uh, it held, held quite a lot of precipitation. And it was at this stage of the game that they started to, uh, to suffer from uh, icing of the airframe uh, and uh, a blast of snow, uh, snow and hail on, on the aircraft itself. And this is where there's a fair number of myths that came out of the flight here. Um, th this is the cockpit facing forward to the left here. These two little bits here are to stop you actually putting your elbow out to, at the side of the cockpit and getting it chopped off by the propeller. So it, it, you are extremely adjacent there. But just behind there are two fuel, fuel flow... Um, uh, sorry, one on there, one on the other side over there. Um, one for each engine and their, their fuel flow uh, gauges, which the pilot does need to have, uh, have a good look at. Um, and so, in fact, it, it's... This is where a bit of a myth came in that, that um, Brown actually climbed out on, during this snowstorm, he climbed out onto the wings and, and cleared off. There were actually dials on the inside of the engine nacelles as well. Uh, he didn't do that at all. All he did is get up on the back of the cockpit here, kneel up on here, and wipe off the, the gauges up there. Mind you, that's, uh, that's uh, enough for somebody who, anyway, had been uh, injured during the war and wasn't all that uh, able to be... Um, active. So they continued on and it became of course next morning um, they continued climbing in the hope once again of getting out of cloud uh, they got up to uh, by 6.20 Zulu the following morning they were up to 9,400 feet um, still with a lot of precipitation etc around still unable to get a decent fix um, <clears throat> And they ultimately climbed up to 11,000 feet, which uh, by today's normal standards is such that you, would, uh, you should, during daylight, uh, be on uh, oxygen above 10,000 feet. Uh, and at night, you should be on, on oxygen above 8,000 feet. Uh, they, of course, had no such thing, and they were bumbling around at 11,000 feet. Um, but uh, they did manage to get one, Brown managed to get one more uh, fleeting position line uh, off the sun, and in doing so, he uh, decided that at 7.20 should be their top of descent for coming back into, um, uh, into Ireland. Um, they descended, and by uh, 8 o'clock or so, they were down to 1,000 feet, uh, still in cloud, um, but the icing which they'd suffered from uh, had melted away. Uh, the icing, incidentally, completely iced up their ailerons so that they were unusable. Uh, but apparently the Vimy was supposed to be laterally extremely stable and you didn't need ailerons. So uh, uh, that, again, is something that I think would frighten any, any pilot the thought of not having them. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, any form of icing had, had by then melted. Uh, and they were just descending... Uh, hoping to descend below cloud and see the sea below them. They had no idea of what the QNH was, the, the local pressure setting, uh, no way of knowing that, um, 
and to, they actually came out of cloud at 500 feet. Uh, it's a salient thought that had they uh, had the pressure changed by uh, around about 20 uh, millibars, had it become around 20 millibars lower than when they first got airborne and set the altimeter, uh, then they would have uh, flown into the sea um, without knowing it, had, the, uh, had they not broken out of the cloud below. So, uh, finishing off, they basically uh, got themselves a, a last, they, they did come out of cloud, um, they managed to get a final um, drift and uh, ground speed. Um, <coughs> having looked at that, then uh, Brown seemed to think they were quite a long way north of track, so he gave a new, uh, a new heading, and this again shows you this, the sort of wonderful accuracy with which this can be done, but this was uh, uh, just steer north, uh, 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 quite a bit south, and in fact he went on to a heading of 170, uh, to, uh, magnetic to come back uh, onto track. Um, here they were coming in. They'd got a final, uh, a final uh, fix here, simply a, a distance fix. They hadn't got really a, a decent one so far as tracking was concerned, but he did reckon he was north of track. They altered heading, and there they were, hopefully coming into towards Ireland there. Um, as they continued then, uh, in fact, uh, Alcock was the first to see it, and they saw a couple of islands ahead, um, and uh, they were in fact um, a, a couple of Eshel uh, uh, and, and Turbot of the two islands, and um, they, having done this, uh, in fact, um, they had made the big assumption that, that this was going to be island that they had hit, uh, which uh, they were lucky it was, um, and the thought was that they should um, try and find a railway station, have a look and see where the devil they actually were. Um, this they um, uh, were thinking of doing still. They crossed, they crossed inland, they coasted in at 8.25 um, on the 15th, the day after. Uh, as he says, probably Northern Ireland. Uh, can you go further south? Talking about following a... a, a Railway, but in fact they saw the masts of of, of the uh, the Clifton uh, transmitter, um, saw a, what appeared to be a nice big field, and uh, decided to land in it. Um, unfortunately, the the field itself proved to be a, a bog, and uh, they they actually touched down very nicely. But at the end of the run, then it, it nosed over into the uh, into the bog there, which was was a great shame. Um, it uh, actually destroyed some of the mapping and, and notes that, uh, that Brown had had. The cockpit filled up with fuel, um, but they, uh, they got out of it, and, and in fact nothing ever caught fire. Um, they were met by a load of people, ultimately, from the, the transmitting station, who didn't believe that they were uh, from America anyway, until they actually showed them the, the, um, the actual post bag, which was itself from, uh, from, the, uh, from Newfoundland and all of a sudden they realised they had a couple of famous people in their presence. Um, I'll just quickly finish off by saying that I thought the, the navigation that they did was absolutely incredible, and I, I, I really do take my hat off to Brown for that, also to Alcock for some remarkable flying. Uh, this, just quickly, is the cockpit of the, the Vimy replica that was built in the 90s and flew across, and you can see just how things, even though it was a... Uh, an open cockpit, and 
they were uh, trying to give the impression that they were replicating the flight. Um, I think they were a long, long way from replicating the flight, to be honest. When you look here, you see that you've got uh, uh, an artificial horizon, you've got uh, gyros, uh, uh, you've got all of the radio stuff, uh, the engine instruments are in the cockpit, uh, a, a great communication suite here, uh, secondary radar there. Uh, I suspect that somewhere hidden in there is a GPS, which just helps a little tiny bit as you're going across the Atlantic. Um, so really, that was that to my mind was no replica at all. Uh, people should have done that flight back in that cockpit, I believe, and uh, I myself would have loved to have had a bash at the navigation, but it would have been really tough, and I, I would have been very, very proud of myself had I made anything like as much of a good job of the navigation uh, as did Brown, and I think uh, any pilot would think the same when it comes to Walcott. Thank you very much. Peter. Right, so, they were down. Everyone repaired to the wireless station, and telegrams were sent to Vickers, the Daily Mail, and the Royal Aero Club, not to mention their families. Uh, news travelled fast, and on their way into Galway, the two men encountered curious crowds, and they were obviously fast becoming celebrities. But the crowds seemed to follow them really all the way home. Um, Brown wrote that, so scenes all along the line to London were a magnificent repetition of those from Galway to Dublin. Chester, Crewe and Rugby and other towns sent their mayor or another representative to the station. We could only play our part in a more or less dazed state of grateful wonder. This might be the first recorded instance of jet lag. The, sorry, yes, this is the uh, telegram that Brown sent to his fiancé. Uh, the Daily Mail hosted a lunch at the Savoy on the 20th of June, and this is Brown's copy of the menu. In the style of the day, the dishes include poached eggs allcock, spring chicken a la Vicky's Vimy, and Clifton salad. Winston Churchill, who was then Secretary of State for War, presented the two aviators with the cheque from the mail for £10,000, together with another for £1,000 from Lawrence Phillips, for being the first Britons to fly the Atlantic, and 2,000 guineas from the State Express Cigarette Company. Uh, Churchill also announced in his speech that the King had appointed them both KBEs, and the following day they went by train to Windsor to be knighted. The Vimy was repaired by Vickers. Uh, Flight at the time commented that the souvenir hunters who annexed some parts of the machine might have the decency, under the circumstances, to return their captures, even if it be anonymously and no questions asked. The aircraft was presented to the Science Museum on the 15th of December 1919, three days after Ross and Keith Smith's Vimy had reached Australia. Three days after that, Jack Alcock was dead. He'd been ferrying a Vickers Viking to the Paris Aircraft Exhibition and crashed in Normandy near Rouen. Now, it's said that Brown never flew again after Alcock's death, although there is an indication he did at least fly to America at one stage. He married his fiancée Marguerite and worked first for Vickers and then Metropolitan Vickers as their chief representative in Swansea, and he had a propeller from the Vimy on his office wall. 
1945, he presented it to a flying school at Cranwell and pointed out in his letter that it wasn't the, the propellers on the Science Museum aircraft were not original, uh, but please don't mention it, he said. Uh, one biography says that every year Brown would visit the Science Museum on the anniversary of their flight and gaze for hours at the aircraft. The Browns had a son, Arthur Jr. He became an RAF pilot and sadly was killed on D-Day in an intruder mosquito. The aircraft apparently was last seen set in course with the lower identification light still on, which would obviously make it an easy target. Brown himself died in 1948, apparently through an accidental overdose of sleeping pills. What other tangible reminders of this pioneering flight do we have? Well, there are two memorials uh, commemorating the flight near the landing spot. The cairn at the top there is on the site of the wireless station and about 500 yards from the landing spot. Presumably that is as a bog too soft to support any sort of memorial. And the sculpture at the bottom is on a hill about a mile north of the landing place. That was dedicated in 1959. In Canada there's a monument at the um, place where the flight started and a plaque in the airport at St John's. And David Rowland earlier mentioned the um, statue at Heathrow. This is the unveiling ceremony in uh, 1954. I presume the building in the background is Terminal Zero. The statue has moved several times as Heathrow has expanded and in fact is now on the north side of the airport near what's called the Heathrow Academy, which is a sort of visitor centre. And there's a, mon a monument at Manchester Airport, as both men had Manchester connections. To mark the 60th anniversary of the flight, in June 79, the Air Force flew Phantom XV-424 from Goose Bay in Newfoundland to the UK, taking 5 hours 40 minutes. It was flown by squadron leader Tony Olcock, um, nephew of Sir John, and a flight lieutenant Norman Brown. They also took one of the cats with them. That aircraft, XV-424, is now on display in the Royal Air Force Museum at Hendon. Sadly, not in this commemorative colour scheme, but as it came out of service with 56 Squadron. What conclusions can we draw from the Alcock and Brown flight? Well, to my mind, their success was due to three main factors. They had a reliable airframe and engines. Hawker and Mackenzie Grieve got about halfway and then their engine literally let them down. And Wood and Wiley didn't even get to their starting point. Alcock was full of praise for the engine, the carburettor, the all-British Watford magneto, and finally the shell spirit. He also pointed out he only used full throttle for takeoff, And perhaps that was a good factor that he didn't um, push the engines too hard. As David has pointed out, Brown's navigation was very important. It was more than just a question of heading east. It was a remarkable feat to arrive so close to their goal. Thirdly, the pair showed remarkable endurance. Brown reckoned that by the time they finally got some sleep in Ireland, they'd been awake for 40 hours. 
As you've heard, Alcock had to fly the aircraft all the time. It was very difficult to hold that course. Just carrying the compass around, it swings like mad. And you saw the note earlier, keep her nearer to 120 than 140. Was it a milestone? Or were they before their time, as some people have suggested? There was no further crossing by land plane before Lindbergh in 1927. And the first east-west crossing was in 1930, and that apparently took 37 hours. I suppose the best um, memorial to the two men is that their epic adventure has become an everyday journey. The first time I took my family to Florida, I was sitting in one of Mr. Branson's 747s. I noticed on the map in front of me that it had Clifton marked on it. Now... The wireless station closed in 1922, so I can only think of one reason for having Clifton on that map. Arthur Whitton Brown couldn't have dreamt of a computer-generated map or a GPS, and I think he'd have rather liked the idea of being one of the two people responsible for putting Clifton on the aviation map. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter and David. We have a few minutes for um, questions. But Peter and David, would you like to take places at the table? Uh, John King. Uh, I seem to remember that one of the two, I think it was Alcock, had a brother who became uh, an Imperial Airways pilot captain. Do we know anything about him? Did he play any support role in the, in the, uh, in the flight, I before the flight? I think it was more a question of him being um, inspired by um, Orcock to actually become a pilot. Um, he ended up with BOAC, I think. I don't think he was involved in the actual flight itself. Peter Waller, do we know what sort of clock Brown was using in conjunction with his Astro? Uh, as far as we're aware, it's probably just an ordin relatively ordinary um, watch. I don't think there's any real provision um, in the cockpit for a separate clock. But it doesn't seem to come out of any of the notes or, or any of the uh, accounts they wrote at the time. If there'd been a chronometer, I expect it would have been... I would have hoped that if they'd had a chronometer, it might have been mentioned, but... Um, I've not seen anything to that effect. Thank you. Just out of interest, the um, if you come back into the 60s, I recall that the, Navi the RAF Navigator's Watch, which looked just like that, but I haven't stolen that one, um, the uh, restrictions on that were such that it, it had to be accurate to within 26 seconds a day, otherwise you were to hand it in, which is quite remarkable uh, if you compare it with... Uh, with today's uh, watches that will cost you a couple of bob. Um, but of course, if, if you are flying only for 16 hours in their case, the, the sort of standards that you re require for a chronometer type of use is, is really not as anything like as demanding as it is on a, a ship's passage. Hello, Paul Hickley here. I um, wasn't sure I fully understood your explanation of the trimming arrangements. Do I understand that he was actually holding loads and there was no neutral position for the whole 17 hours or 18 hours. That's my understanding, yes. There's no trim tab on the, uh, on the elevator. 
Yeah, and and the the elastic that should have taken the loads was was too short to be used. So uh, even the the Heath Robertson system couldn't didn't help. And certainly, as the, as the fuel, particularly from that tank behind the wing, was used up, the aircraft became more and more nose heavy. Uh, Keith Hope Lang, uh, these little pieces of paper, I would have lost them in the slipstream. Was it in fact a little notebook or was it a roll of paper? There's, um, in fact, holding the, ma the map down in the um, slides that David was using, the two little notebooks. Um, I suppose the closest is about A6 size uh, with wooden um, front and back boards on. So it's very much a question of you know, writing it out and handing it over. And during the darkness, were they using a white torch or a red torch to preserve night vision to, to read these notes? Do we know? I'm not sure whether, um, whether red light was really in, in use at that stage. No. Um, I... I would have thought it was probably a very dim white light. Mm. David Coburn, currently doing some instructing at the Flying Club at Cranwell, just wondered whether you'd got any uh, knowledge of what happened eventually to that propeller. Sadly, no. Um, Your last, last known uh, information, I can try chasing it up, that's all. Um, bearing in mind that um, uh, the founding director of the Royal Air Force Museum was at one stage um, librarian and curator of the Cranwell Museum. There is a vague possibility that it's amongst the many items that uh, Dr. Tanner brought with him to Hendon, but um, perhaps at some stage had lost the attribution to uh, Alcock and Brown. It would be interesting to see how many Vimy propellers we have in store. There, there is also rumoured to be another Vimeo propeller serving, would you believe, as the ceiling fan in a bar in Dublin. That's on Wikipedia, so it must be true. Leslie <laughs> Shelton, um, XCA. We were talking about uh, Orcott's brother. And I met Orcott's brother. I'm sure it's the same one, but he was in uh, Sydney. Australia at that time, working for Angeles Airboats when they purchased the two Stanley and Flying Boats from Hansett and took them back to the West Indies and uh, to St. Croix and uh, he, uh, uh, Walcott's brother was in St. Croix and also in Puerto Rico sitting with the, uh, with the, the two Flying Boats at that time. Although for white, non-pilot, non non-flying person, do, do we know how much fuel they had left? Brown is uh, recorded in his account of the flight that he calculated they had 10 hours worth of fuel left. They thought about flying beyond Ireland, but they could see in the distance that the cloud was down on the hills, and they thought it more prudent to um, land where they could rather than risk going into the cloud and uh, not be high enough to clear the hills. I understand they were actually hoping to make Brooklands. That was the, the master plan was to return to the place of its birth at Brooklands 
where the Vimy would be going home. But whether there was a, a party waiting, as they were in our next story, or not, um, I don't know. But that, that's what I understand, is that, that, that they had enough fuel and their target was to get to Brooklyn's. They, well, certainly the map shows them getting as far as Ireland. Whether they um, had in the sort of back pocket um, a plan that would get them to Brooklyn's, I've a vague feeling I've read they were disappointed they didn't. So, um, For a man who could get across the Atlantic with no visual reference, the chances are crossing to Brooklyn's would have been a piece of cake, indeed. given no cloud on the horizon. Yeah. Yes. Mind you, after, after 16 hours, I think I would have been persuaded by, uh, yes, knackered is, I believe, the, the word, yes. Uh, Charles Camplin, um, just a couple of observations. One is that, um, as we're moving on to lighter than air shortly, that the first lighter than air, or one of the lighter than air crossings of the Atlantic were by Richard Branson in a hot air balloon. They actually had a fuel tank that fell off on their takeoff. They landed in Northern Ireland and bounced. And it was calculated that had they gone on uh, over the North Sea, they would have actually run out of fuel in Mongolia. <laughs> uh, the second thing is just, uh, you mentioned Churchill uh, and his speech at their dinner. And I remember years ago reading that speech, and I've never been able to find it again. And it's wonderfully inspiring stuff. He mentions this little sort of dust moat moving through this vast space. And I'm wondering if you could tell me where I can read it again. The simple answer is no. Um, I can't remember how much detail is reported in flight at the time, or for that matter, the Daily Mail presumably would have a long um, account of it. Um, but presumably the Churchill archives at Cambridge uh, must be a, at least a, you know, high in the list of possibilities. If you yeah. find it, let me know. <laughs> Um, there's a question towards the back. It's, it's me again. Um, David Coburn, just a, a question. You mentioned uh, the praise of the reliability of the engines. If I remember rightly, the Eagles were renowned as being the reliable engine of their time. Can you remember what engines were in the failed attempts that had taken off that month? Simple answer is no, I'm afraid. Um, I found it quite surprising that a lot of people were hoping to get across the Atlantic on one engine. Mm. Um, but actually, I think the Vimy wouldn't fly on one engine, so you were doubling the risk of ditching by having two. <laughs> it gets you to the scene of ditch that much quicker. Um, could I ask, somebody must have retrospectively checked the astrofixes to see how accurate they were. Does anyone know how, how good a shot uh, Brown achieved? I, I certainly don't with uh, my own research, but I do know somebody who's done an enormous amount of research and used to be an astro instructor. Mm. And I, I would ask that person perhaps to do mm. some research in it, Terry. Yes, because it must now be possible to work out what the winds they experienced were and um, effectively do a post-mortem on the flight and the navigation. It, it would be interesting to do a back plot of the, of yeah. the entire thing. We, in fact, we were discussing some of the acronyms used because they're, they're not in current parlance in Astro. Mm. We, we were uh, 
just looking at that at lunchtime, I'm sure it would be possible. Mm. Quite a challenge. Yeah. Nice project for a student <laughs> sometimes. I think uh, we're probably run. Any last questions? In that case, let me wind up this session. Um, thank David and Peter for a wonderful account of a quite outstanding achievement by two very brave and extraordinarily competent men. The more you learn about what they did, just the more outstanding it seems to me. If we could, you could join me in thanking David and Peter for telling us about it.